Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is our Election Watch 2024 show within the Globalists in Plain Sight show, because this year there are about 60,000 people across the world that will be going to the polls. That's 60,000 of the population as elections around the world, and we're going to be covering them. Uh, earlier this month, and it's been in disarray, uh, there were elections in El Salvador, Azerbaijan, and Pakistan. And as of now, uh, we can we can report to you, even though it was earlier in the month, that uh, Berkeley in El Salvador has been reelected. And what ran that race to have him get reelected again is that he's promised to put about 77,000 of the gang members in jail. And there's so much crime in El Salvador that that was what gained him the popularity. In Azerbaijan, the, the uh, president, Aliyev, has been reelected with 92% of the vote, but they have a low percentage of whether or not that that is, um, I guess, reaches the standards of, they say, in Western, uh, the Western Hemisphere. But nevertheless, he's been reelected. In Pakistan, there's disarray. Emir uh, Khan, the ex-prime minister, is in jail. Uh, as everybody knows, he was, uh, there was kind of a deal put out. There was a vote of confidence last year after he visited Putin in Russia, in Moscow. And then he returned the U.S. government, um, asked for a no-confidence vote, uh, probably because of that visit with uh, Putin at the time. And so they've had the elections. His coalition has about 97, they won 97 seats of the 265. The ex-Prime uh, Minister Sharif's party has won about 75 of the seats. And to have a coalition government in Pakistan, there, you need about 134 out of the 265. So Pakistan's government, their coalition hasn't been decided at this point. But what we are focusing on today, <clears throat> pardon me about my voice, I have a little bit of a cold, but what we're focusing on today is what's happening here in the U.S. Uh, presidential race. Last night, I did an interview with Bobby Kennedy, uh, who's on the campaign trail. He was in Michigan going in between two locations and we caught him uh, in the car and now you can see what we talked about. Hi everybody, I'm Christine Dolan and this is Election Watch 2024 and we are honored today to have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. with us who's running as an independent for the President of the United States. Bobby, welcome to the show. Hey Christine, I'm glad to be with you. So where are you, Bobby? I, uh, I understand you're in Michigan someplace. 
Yeah, I'm on the highway from um, Grand Rapids to Detroit. All right. So, um, are you, when you're meeting with people in Michigan, I was out there about uh, four or five weeks ago. What are you telling? What are What are you hearing that that they want to talk about in Michigan? Oh, I'm doing rallies out here, Christine, and I'm doing fundraising events. So, you know, the people out here are, are concerned with many of the same issues that people across the United States. Housing is a huge issue here. Um, you know, the, the, two years ago, the average cost of Atlas was $200,000. The average cost today, or 215000 the average cost today is 400000 and the interest rates have gone from three to to seven percent. And so, you know, there. If you're a young kid today, if you're between twenty or thirty, uh, you can't get into house, and and you probably never will. Um, my kids, I have seven kids. One of them, who's thirty nine, is in a home. But the six younger ones, who are between twenty and thirty, have no plans to buy a house and no conception of how they do it. And by the way, they all went to great schools. They all have good jobs, but they're not, none of them are making enough to, uh, uh, to afford a home. And you've got a whole generation of kids, you know, when you and I were, were growing up, it was the central bargain of the American dream that if you worked hard, you played by the rules, you could afford a home. You could, uh, you could finance the home, you could support your family, you could take a summer vacation, you could put something aside for your retirement on one job. And there's nobody in this generation who believes that that promise applies to them. And here in, uh, in Michigan, you have, uh, you have these giant corporations like BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, but other ones as well, a lot of them foreign corporations. We're buying hundreds and hundreds of single-family homes, and they're driving the price up, and our kids have to compete with them for the cost of money, and there's no way they can do that. They, there's no way that they can compete against BlackRock's bank. That's right. So, you know, we've got, we have these big companies that are erasing the American dream. They're turning America into a nation of, of from a nation of owners, from an ownership society to a rental society. And when they do that, we go from being citizens to being subjects. It's really important for people to get their own homes in this country. Our, you know, we, we created the American middle class after World War II. And one of the major things that we did was we, with the veterans bill and with also with the highway program and a number of other programs, we got you know virtually every American who wanted to into into homes, and because if you own a home, you care about your community, you care about the police, you care about the fire, the the sanitation, the transportation. You go to the PTA meetings. You care about the appearance of your community, and, but more importantly, you have a you have a, an entree to the American capitalist system because you, if you own a home, you have equity, which means you can right. borrow money, which means you can get a bank loan and you can go out and you know invest in a bowling alley or a yoga studio or a bookstore or a sporting goods store or a restaurant or a bar. And you know it was this explosion of a small business 
that occurred after the GI Bill that really made the American middle class the, the greatest economic engine in the history of mankind. When I was growing up and, you know, the same time as you, um, we owned half the wealth on the face of the earth in our country. We were the greatest exporter of goods in the world. Now, you know, we don't even have an industrial base where you financialize this economy. It's being run, you know, by the, the big bets on Wall Street. The big boxes. Are not, corporations. Are not, they're not looking at productivity of a, you know, of a factory and, and sales. They don't look at that anymore. Nobody cares. But right. they're looking at, right. they're trying to bet on what the Fed, you know, is going to do with its rates next season and that's where all the money's pouring and we've you know we've completely financialized the american economy and we pay for that with with the war economy we keep up all these other nations buying our dollars and that props up the dollar and allows the financialization of the american economy well, let me pivot, Bobby, when you bring up the wars, okay? So our, our um, well, my friend, I'll call him, Tucker Carlson, you know, did an extraordinary interview with Putin. It was a long history lesson. But at the same time, I found it to be interesting about the timing that Putin decided to give Tucker that uh, interview. And it's right before the Munich Security uh, Conference, which is next weekend in Germany. And I was looking at the people that are going to be there, and uh, lo and behold, Hillary Clinton's going to be part of that to discuss, you know, what's the state of the world, the state of the chaos, the state of the wars. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, <laughs> all these people that were the warmongers that are going to show up that want to keep this going as opposed to sitting at the table and negotiating and getting some peace in this planet? No, I mean, the Munich Security Conference is kind of the neocons, uh, you know, national holiday. It's a, it's a, <laughs> It's the conference of spies. It's where all of the national security officials, all the top spies from the CIA, from uh, from the K, from the uh, MI5, from the uh, from the German and French and, and and intelligence agencies all over the world, where they all come together once a year. Uh, typically, it'll have over twenty heads of state there. And it's all about how do you drum up new crises, new wars. Munich Security Conference is where they they um, war gamed again and again a global pandemic. Um, they it's the first place they war gamed a monkeypox pandemic. Right. It's all about turning the, uh, the world into into a series of imperiums and warlike bellicose societies and transforming democracy into national security states. If you go to that meeting, you know, and you're there um, uh, to advance the agenda of the Munich Security Conference, you're part of the war machine. Exactly, exactly. The whole whole purpose is to drum up a pipeline of new wars for BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, and the military contractors that they own, Raytheon, General Dynamics, uh, uh, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, Lockheed, etc. So the, okay. the purpose of the, of the Munich Security Conference is to turn us all into warfare states abroad and imperiums abroad and national security and surveillance states at home and to strip line 
the wealth from the middle class across Western Europe, the U.S., everywhere, and create this oligarchy, this plutocracy of billionaires. And, um, you know, it's very, very, the, the same people who go to the Munich Security Co Conference are also, a lot of them are the people who are at, da at Davos. It's the Bill Gates, that old billionaires boys club, you know, that is all about militarizing our society of, of, of creating permanent pandemics that will keep us in a state of fear and compliant and, and, um, and enrich the, the billionaire military contractors and, and, and pharmaceutical companies. Well, let's let's talk. Let's talk about. They also create these migrations when they create these wars, which increase which increases human trafficking, which you know is something big on my heart for a quarter of a century. Bobby, you've been down on the border now twice, I think. Did I? I don't know if you've been uh, recently. What is your What is your take on on what you're seeing down there? Because I'm interviewing you know a lot of whistleblowers that are in different pockets working for HHS or the Office of Refugee Relief. And uh, the stories are pretty heartbreaking. And under um, Obama, there were maybe about 36,000 on average unaccompanied children a year. Under Trump, it was like 15,000 on average a year. And under Biden, it's 136,000 on average a year. So we're, we're talking about little kids. I interviewed one guy who told me he escorted a three-month-old unaccompanied baby because the mother died. So. I know that you care about human suffering. I certainly know you care about children. So how can this be handled? Because it's gotten to the point where we have, we don't just have immigrants that are in, you know, New York City, Chicago, and Denver, and LA. We have them in rural areas in the Midwest, as well as on the Eastern shore of Maryland. So how, how, how do we handle this without looking like we're really barbarians at the same time we want to we want to respect uh the the you know the treaty of westphalia and sovereignty in the united states and also the economic sustainability when you have an influx of immigrants going into communities well i mean there's nothing humane about this about what's happening there I, you know i uh, i interviewed about 110 of the immigrants. I've watched 300 come across between two o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the morning in Yuma. And I interviewed half of, uh, half of the 300 that I saw. And, you know, they uh, there were stories just in that cohort of people who've been raped, robbed, uh, exploited, extorted, uh, Peruvian families that their entire life savings robbed by the cartels at, who they had paid the Sinaloa cartel $10,000 to take them across. Right. People were coming from all over the world. There, there were only the, the, that night, and I've been down there since, but that first night, I, there was only two families from Latin America. Was one from Peru, one from Colombia. The rest, there were 150, 110 men from West Africa. Um, and then another 110 people from Asia. And I talked to them all and they all said, we're here for a job. And, uh, and then they come across and they, they can't legally work. Uh, they're sent to any destination they want by the border patrol. They're driven to the Yuma airport, put on a plane to anywhere they want. And they end up you know, on the social, crushing the social safety net for cities like new york every city in our country is now a border town 
Mm -hmm. uh, New York City has had to cut its police by 5%, its fire protection by 5%, its sanitation by 5%, its education by 5% to pay for this cost. This is not humanitarian. And meanwhile, those migrants can't work. They're, you know, they're subject to additional exploitation by unscrupulous employers who are paying them six to 12 bucks an hour. No better, but not enough to get them off the street. They're living in tents on the playing fields on Randall's Island. This is where our children are supposed to learn. Okay. Many of these kids, many of these kids were on scholarship trajectory. Their sporting fields were closed down for two and a half years. Their lives were derailed. And now they can't go play sports because there's encampments for, for uh, aliens on their on their property. Listen, Christine, the last 20 years of his life, I worked, particularly the last decade of his life, I worked very closely with Cesar Chavez. And he had two issues, one that I was involved with, pesticide exposures to Hispanic farm workers. Right. And which dis suffered disproportionately from those kind of toxicities. The other big issue he had was closing the border because he saw how that uh, this, this big influx of illegal aliens who had no bargaining power was eroding the capacity for him to leverage good uh, good jobs, good conditions for his own workers. We need to have open gates, Christine. We need to enlarge the gates so that people can come in this country who are needed. I is businesses who are going to, you know, you know, we've decided to prioritize. Uh, we need seasonal workers that, you know, a lot of these, a lot of migrants do not want to live in the United States, They want, but they need to be able to come across easily. And this is detracting from that program. Because the Border Patrol has shifted to the border rather than the ports. And it's just a catastrophe for everything. We need workers in this country. We need to support the Social Security system prevent its collapse. You need a substrate of workers who are going to take these jobs and be able to pay taxes. And this is not a way to do that. This is not good for anybody, including the migrants. I agree with you on that, Bobby. And and also it, it demoralizes anybody who comes into this country, even if they're needed. Uh, yeah. And, and it, it, I mean, it, every way you look at this, it's a it's a humanitarian disaster. It's an economic disaster for them as well as for the United States. I agree with you on that. Yes, there's a ray of, in in Yuma. You look across the border, you can see a ray a tree they call the rape tree, which is the place where the cartels extract the final payment for women and children before they come across the border. So it's a place that where all these rapes take place visible from the U.S. side of the border. I visited, I talked to Border Patrol who had brought, who taken a 15-year-old girl, arrested her multiple times for bringing six and seven-year-old girls into the country. So they were using an older child to escort little babies who she didn't know across the country for some destination that is unknown. I also visited, I spent a day at a rape center in Yuma with that is designed to treat children who have been raped. If you can imagine that, if you can imagine that there is in the United States a center that is 
dedicated to treating these children. And I, you know, there, I did a, a piece about it, a documentary about it, um, uh, called Midnight at the Border. And it's just, it's heartbreaking and it's horrible. And it's horrible. This, I, I think the port, the patrol has lost some 86,000 kids. This, this, this is a real problem. It's not invented. I witnessed it, witnessed it with my own eyes. And it's horrible. We got to stop it. And we can. The good news is we can shut the border down overnight. We need we need mainly policy changes. This is all because of President Biden's got rid of the catch and return program and exchange it for a catch and release program. There's all kinds of people who talk about you know different ulterior motives, but it seems to me that it, it can be explained by just political pettiness. They did not want to do what Trump was going to do. They did not want to acknowledge that he was right about putting a wall, at least in the urban areas. You know, I didn't agree with Trump's policy. You need a wall 2,200 miles. You don't need a wall for 2,200 miles from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego, but you do need it in the urban areas where migrants can quickly disappear. And in the countryside you need fights long distance cameras monitoring equipment so that the, the uh we know what's happening at the border and today you know none of that is happening so there's some infrastructure if there are personnel we need more border patrol we need asylum court judges on the border to adjudicate these cases very quickly i'm going to do all that the first week that i get into office let me ask you, Bobby, because the, the uh, last question here, because I know we're running out of time and, and we're, we're, we're going to keep on dropping out. We're going to have to edit this. But at the same time, let me ask you about the uh, Robert Hur report. Do you think it's fair uh, to, to question Joe Biden's mental acuity at this point? You know, what I made a pledge when I, I made a pledge when I entered this campaign that I was not going to personally attack President Biden or President Trump or talk about their legal problems or their family's legal problems. But I don't think at this point that it is character assassination to ask questions about the mental competence of the president. The, the, the press is openly doing it. They're openly doing it at press conferences to President Biden himself. And because of the special counsel's report, I think it's now, you know, legitimate public debate. And I think that President Biden, you know, he's he's looking to renew a job and a position where the job is a, a job that requires mental acuity, uh, flexibility, complex thinking, uh, extraordinary nuance. He needs to be able to answer the phone at three o'clock in the morning and and to, you know, and to make a decision that can affect the lives of the entire planet. And so I think it is it is fair for his opponents, the public, the press to say, you know, we need to see some proof that you can actually handle those kind of issues. And, you know, you need to do a debate, for example. You need to have unscripted encounters with voters with the press and where there's give and take and you need to do it at different points of the day and uh, and do it show that you have the energy the vigor to do this job because we're all counting on it Bobby what is the what is your the people want to know what is your path to victory now 
Well, I just have to pin 270 electoral votes. I'm in Michigan today. I'm already at 27 points here, and I got nine months. I'm climbing at about a point a month. I'm already beating President Biden and President Trump in this state uh, and six other or five other battleground states in all American under 45 years of age. I beat them nationwide, both President Trump and President Biden among Americans under 35 and, and dramatically beat them. I beat them both currently among independent voters. And these are the biggest cohorts. So, and I'm already in a three-way tie beating President Trump, you know, behind uh, President Biden by about a point with Hispanic voters. And so, I, you know, I think the only real group that I have problems with, Christine, is baby boomers. And they should actually like me more than anybody because, you know, they're the ones who remember Camelot. And they were, you know, I was a, a big hero to that cohort. During the my major concern was the environment. Um, so, I, and I think the reason I do poorly with them is because they get their news from MSNBC, CNN, and the, the television networks, the New York Times and the Washington Post. And you know, those those networks, those news outlets, have uh, will not allow me on at this point to do a, a real interview, a live interview, and instead. You know, coverage of me is a series of defamations and inaccuracies and mischaracterizations that if I, if that was the only news ecosystem that I had, I, I have a very low opinion of myself. Well, at the same time, Bobby, the baby boomers also know that the DNC changed the rules, that they're old enough to know that they, that they played some shenanigans. They're old enough to know that the Mark Eliases uh, what they did to Bernie Sanders when he ran against Hillary Clinton. They're old enough to know that, you know, this is this is not ordinary times. So I, I think there's a window of opportunity for people to understand when Mark Elias or any of these guys from Covington, Coven, uh, Covington and Burling go, come after you, you know, with the FEC complaint. These, this is the same law firm, for God's sakes, that, you know, that has an SEC hacking investigation going on and the Covington and Burling refused to turn over the documents to the U.S. government. So, I mean, there's a lot of shenanigans here. And we know this from the uniparty that's in Washington, D.C., but it's turned on steroids now with the Democratic Party. And that's why you're running for as an independent. I think the baby boomers can't understand that because it's a different climate. Well, I hope so. And, you know, I'm starting to break through to the mainstream press. Um, uh, Wired magazine, which is kind of a bellwether, did a really nice article about me. I mean, they put in some obligatory defamations about me being a uh, conspiracy theorist. But otherwise, it was a pretty good piece. And uh, and I had a, a, a full-length interview, live interview on Michael McConnell's last week. NBC did a really nice article about me, um, you know, about the fact that 34% of the American public said that they would consider voting for me, and it was a very, very complimentary article. So those are big breakthroughs for me. And it's in, in, and it's at the same time, because this is only the beginning of February of 2024, you and I are both old enough and experienced to know that there's about three, three centuries between now and November. Anything can happen this year. It's going to be nothing but rock and roll. Yeah, I I agree. I, you know, and I I try not to put spin on it, but just 
you know, it's in God's hands ultimately, and I'm I'm going to do everything you know I can do in my power. Well, Bobby, to, uh, to make sure that America, I said I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that Americans hear this message and that I have a shot at it. But ultimately, it's in God's hands, and you know we'll see what happens. Well, you are you have been telling the truth, Bobby. Whether people agree with you or not, you are telling the truth. And when you tell the truth, you take a lot of bricks and politics, and we we know that. And I just want to I just want to note that it is the Biden administration that has refused to give you Secret Service protection. So Godspeed, and I hope to God that you are protected with uh, Gavin and the boys, because it is uh, unconscionable to me that the Biden administration has not given you secret service. And I've been pretty vocal about it. I think it's it's absolutely immoral. Everybody in Washington, D.C., you know, knows that, that it's wrong. Yeah, and, and Christine, I want to just take a moment to thank you for an entire career of truth-telling, of speaking truth to power, of standing up to you know, powerful interests and protecting the least vulnerable. So you're, you're, you're a role model for me, so thank you. Well, thank you, Bobby. And I hope to talk to you soon when you're not in a car so we're not interrupted as much and we don't have to do as much editing. But Godspeed to you. I'm so and sorry you. about that. That's okay. I'll get back to stuff. We'll try to do it again. Great. Thank you, Christine. Maybe. It's going to be a good day. Monday, we do have a little bit left available here. Check us out, familyfarmbeefbox.com. Thanks. Have a good day. So we're back, and I just want to uh, put this into some context. We did, as I said, we we caught Bobby on the road, and this is kind of an extraordinary week because not only did Special Counsel Robert Hur's report come out. But there was on, on Thursday, but there was a great pushback by the White House. President Joe Biden held a press conference on uh, late or early Thursday night, and he came out swinging. And he basically said that, you know, how, how the hell dare uh, her put into the report that he had a faulty, faulty memory, which he did. And in the report, it cited that uh, Biden couldn't remember what year he was vice president and also the date of his late son, Bo's death. Um, that will probably be in a transcript someplace, folks, um, but, it did, but it did remind me just how significant it is for people to take a look at the age of somebody who obviously has some missteps and misstatements um, from the White House in a time of great peril <clears throat> when we have a lot going on. So uh, today, Jill Biden, Jill Biden, the first lady, has come out um, swinging as well and basically called it outrageous in so many words that anybody would be questioning her husband's mental acuity. And our next guest is somebody who's a friend of this program, um, Mike McCormick. Where are you, Mike? Whoops. I, I, our producer is doing it. And I there we go. And so here we go. Michael McCormick, who is a has been a White House stenographer in the past, has traveled with 
than the Vice President Biden uh, on his foreign trips and has been closer than most of the White House press corps to see how Mr. Biden behaves behind closed doors when the press isn't around. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Christine. And I really enjoyed your interview with Bobby Kennedy there. That was, I saw the bottom, very interesting. Well yes, it, it is. And, you know, it's um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens, because as we all know, and I repeat this all the time to people who don't cover politics as long as I have, nor has been as close to it. It really is three centuries away between now and November because anything can happen. But, Michael, I wanted to talk to you about your book. It's right behind you. Bring it bring it over. Show it to everybody. It is finally in print. They can buy it out there on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. <clears throat> this is this is your body of work. So let's talk about um, how did you view, first of all, this week, how did you view Tucker's interview with Ooh. Putin and about Biden? And because I know that we have reported, I actually, it has my name on it. I reported, you know, when the war continued, but speeded up in 2020, Todd, uh, who's with us, our founder and CEO, had been in Ukraine since 2014, went back when this shifted in 2022. And then I had heard from heads of state staff in European countries that they, that Putin was on the phone with their leaders and basically saying he wanted to hear from Washington, meaning he wanted a call from Biden. And in Tucker's interview, he admitted that he hasn't spoken to Biden since the beginning of this phase in 2022, which is pretty extraordinary if you think about it, uh, because we are using Zelensky as a press, as a proxy to go after Putin. So what was your take of that? Because I thought it was a very interesting, I thought, it, you know, I don't know about Russian history going back to the eighth century. I admit that, but I thought, you know, some of the things, some of the stuff that, that uh, Putin said was spot on. You're right. And, you know, I'm just going to throw back to something Bobby Kennedy brought up when he was talking about the border crisis, how he thought it was brought on by Joe Biden just being petty about just throwing out a good policy that Trump had instated along the border. Well, that's basically what happened with, with Ukraine. Joe Biden went in there and was petty, petty with what Trump had done but also even worse, petty with Putin. And that goes back to his first, uh, his first real meeting with Putin took place in 2011 in Moscow. Were, you on, that, were you on that trip, Mike? I was on that trip. I went on that trip and I wrote about it in my book and the title of the chapter I wrote was Bitch Slapped in Moscow because Putin made him look stupid. He made him look like a chump in front of a press pool that was only one person, a guy from the Wall Street Journal. But there was a lot of, Moscow-based press in there. And basically what happened was there was a contentious meeting in uh, a chamber, like an inner chamber meeting room right next to Putin's office, which then Putin was the prime minister. So he wasn't in the Kremlin. He was in the Russian White House. And um, they had this meeting and basically in the middle of Joe's sentence, Putin shut down the microphone, shut off all the lights. The TV guys cut their cameras Everybody left the room with Joe in mid-sentence. That's a real snub. And like you said, I've been a White House stenographer in the White House covering these world leader meetings since 2002. This was 2011. I've never seen one world leader do that to another. And, you know, what was just, the, pardon me for interrupting. What was Biden saying at that point when Putin pulled the plug? Well, so Putin teed him up. He, he got him set up. 
you know, Putin's the KGB guy. He knows how to get uh, Biden going. So back then, Joe Biden would talk and talk and talk and never shut up. Putin said, you've been around a long time. And, you know, Joe Biden, just in the middle of this sentence where he goes, I've been around a long time. And let me tell you, boom, everything shuts off. So they kind of egged him into it. And then he got going and started to ramble like he used to. And that's when they shut him off. And so and what was interesting that came out of it is um, later Biden would come up with this concoct this story. And it's not it's not clear if it's true or not. But the story was that after that meeting, he either after or before that meeting, he had a one on one with Putin in his office and he looked in his eyes and said, I can look in your eyes and I can tell you don't have a soul. And that was a throwback line that Biden used to uh, illustrate what what George W. Bush had said to Putin. I looked in his eyes and I saw he has a soul. That was something he said when Putin visited his farm uh, in the early years of their relationship. That was before I started at the White House. But um, so everybody made a big deal about, you know, uh, this George W. Bush. And, and Biden was basically making fun of it. And, and Biden's telling Putin's reply is good. Then we have an understanding. Well, you referenced um, how Putin in their first meeting. So Biden and Putin met in Geneva in 2021 in March. So this is after Biden is a president. They have gone through this insult in uh, in Moscow. Out of that grows the Ukraine, the Ukraine conflict. And, you know, Putin in that interview with Tucker was pointing specifically at that. He never talked. He never used Joe Biden by name. He never mentioned him by name. He never mentioned Obama by name. He talked about a little bit about Trump. He talked about um, Bush a lot. But he, and he talked about Clinton, how his dealings with them and named them. Never Biden. And, and Condoleezza Rice, too. Yeah. And so to me, it was like, look, I didn't have, you know, to me, behind the scenes, having seen what Putin did to him, Putin didn't have a lot of respect for Obama. He didn't have a lot of respect for Biden. And they took that and ran this, what Putin calls a soft coup. Very, very, uh, a lot of evidence of that in this book. I mean, you know, I basically outlined how Biden started this Burisma kickback scheme on the backside of this um, three and a half million dollar money transfer that Elena Batarina, Putin's ally in Moscow, then the then mayor of Moscow's wife, sent to Hunter Biden and Devin Archer in February. It was, it was exactly uh, it was February 14th, 2020, 2014, 10 years ago almost. And so they get this money and then Biden starts this this kickback scheme. And within days of Biden starting this kickback scheme, Putin has invaded Crimea. And Putin spent a lot of time talking with Tucker about the importance of Crimea. Well, you know, behind the scenes, what's never spoken is what we really want to figure on. What's also not spoken in that Tucker and Putin interview was Crimea and the Donbass, where all the uh, fighting is taking place now, are where these huge shale gas deposits are. And that's basically what Putin is after, shale gas deposits. They talked a little bit about the transits of opening up the pipelines. I, you know, Putin said, I've got pipelines. Germany just needs to open them. Let's let the gas flow. And so there's a lot of pettiness by the uh, Biden people in, in and around the natural gas resources 
that Putin is about to take over. I don't think this ends well for Joe Biden. It's already going poorly for Ukrainians and Russians. They're getting killed by the hundreds of thousands over a petty political spat, really, between these two world leaders. And Putin's going to win. He's the strong man. He's going to prove it. Let me ask you this. In your book, you, you, you have a chapter about Obama. Yeah. Let's 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 get into some of this, because, you know, when people talk about the Joe Biden's administration, as you well know, because you're you know Washington, you you've lived in Washington for a long time, reported, you know, on these trips, um, both foreign and domestic. But, you know, specifically with Vice President Biden on his foreign trips. What do you what do you think? Who's running the show? Is is it the Obama people with Jake Sullivan, Samantha Powers, Tony Blinken, the same people that were around the Clinton machine, the Obama White House? And do you, is is Joe Biden just taking the Obama platforms and putting no. them in steroids? What do you think's happening? No. So I would put Tony Blinken as Obama. Um, he's Obama. I mean, I'm sorry. He's a he's a Joe Biden loyalist. So there's a group of Joe Biden loyalists that were always together throughout the Obama administration. And then there's the broader Obama, Samantha Powers, broader Obama. Um, Jeff Zients now is a broader Obama. So they're sort of in place. And Jill certainly is one of his key advisors. So there's these internal advisors, uh, Tony Blinken, the Donalins, Mike and Tom Donilon, um, Ted Kaufman, um, Ron Klain. Jill Hunter is actually one, and they're the core. And then outside of that is the Obama people. Well, if you look at Axelrod right now, Axelrod has been anti-Biden for months, actually for years. He didn't really want Biden to run. So there's there's a lot of antagonism behind the scenes uh, between Obama operatives and Biden. And it comes, I wrote a whole chapter in my book. So what is Obama do, what is Obama doing right now? The Obama people are there covering up for the conspiracy that they put together. There were conspiracies in Ukraine. There were conspiracies in Honduras. Joe Biden was basically the point man for the conspiracy. I don't know if he was the idea guy behind the conspiracy and Obama just okayed it. That's my suspicion. Obama didn't spend a lot of time worrying about much except his golf game and his public image and his legacy in the latter years, so 2014 on, and especially once the Senate flipped and he became basically a, a lame duck. So in 2014, 2015, 2016, Obama just basically checked out. And Biden did a lot of the heavy lifting. He did a lot of the heavy lifting throughout that uh, that administration. So- what, Michael, so what, before you go on to that, let's talk about, because um, you and I have talked about this in the past, so Joe Biden, Honduras connected to the migration because back in 2013, yeah. 14, and 15, what we're seeing on the southern border now, it, it, it you know, the numbers now are about 130, as I said um, to Bobby, it's about 136, 136,000 um, of unaccompanied children under the Biden administration. Under the Obama administration, it was on average about 36,000 of unaccompanied children coming across the border the border. Under Trump, it dropped to about 15,000. And we saw the intentional migration back in 2013, 14, 15, 16, where, you know, it was the DACA issue at the time. There was a Washington Post reporter who went public and said he was part of DACA. He then left. He had a, a 
documentary that was financed by Soros. He was, I, I'm pretty certain I remember this, he was actually invited to the White House because then President Obama endorsed it. But you have mentioned to me in the past and about how Biden was the straw man to basically work out some type of behind under the table deal for an influx of migration of, of um, illegal migrants at the time across the southern border in Honduras. Explain that to the public. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, Bobby Kennedy's comments about seeing the rape tree and the rape center down there is just sure. stomach churning. And that's Joe Biden's legacy. That has to be Joe Biden's legacy. And here's why. So in 2012, we took a trip. I went with Joe Biden to Honduras. You know, at the time, the this is 2012. They're ramping up for the 2012 election. This is March 2012. We went there. Uh, they're trying to in, increase their inroads in the Hispanic community. Well, the president of Honduras at the time was a drug smuggling cartel affiliated guy named uh, Pepe Sosa Loba at Lobo. And his son is now serving a decades long prison sentence for being a drug smuggler. Is that his son or his brother? His son, Pepe his son. Lobo Sosa's son is a drug smuggler. The, <clears throat> um, the next president of uh, Honduras, a guy named Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brother is now spending a multi-year, a lifetime uh, sentence for drug smuggling. And the president is about, who was who was arrested and extradited after he left office, extradited by Joe Biden, is about to be put on trial for decades long drug smuggling at car, with the cartels, bringing tons of cocaine into the United States. Joe Biden went there in 2012. He knew what they were doing. They set up uh, an operation called Operation Anvil, where they use American assets to supplement the drug smuggling done by Pepe Sosa Loba's son and his cartel friends. That became a debacle and they ran away from it and covered it up as fast as they could. And the details are in my book. Then they got rid of Sosa Loba and brought in this guy, Juan Orlando Hernandez. In 2014, they, the DEA had electronic surveillance on Juan Orlando Hernandez's brother saying, we're going to smuggle tons of cocaine into America through our government resources. DEA had that. That went up the chain, I guarantee it. All of a sudden, in the summer of 2014, these unaccompanied minors start showing up at the border by the thousands, and it became a crisis. At the time, they didn't want to call it a crisis, but it was a crisis. So Just Sheila, like now, when people were saying a year ago, you know, everything's secure on the border, which is right. an insane statement. Right. And Cecilia Munoz was in charge of that. Well, in runs Joe Biden. Joe Biden is on the phone with this guy, Orlando Hernandez. He's looking at this crisis. He's been to the region a lot. He cooks up something called the Alliance for Prosperity. And they run it through Congress in 2014 after the election, late, uh, late November 2014. It goes through. So with his, his Democratic senator buddies, they run it through. They spent $1.5 billion in USAID to three tiny Central American countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And explain, explain to the public what the Alliance for Prosperity was, the, the, the stated public mission statement of that. They were to develop strategies to decrease the need for immigration. They were going to go in there and 
in, in, improve their judicial system, uh, do all these different things. There's never been an accounting of it. Joe And Joe Biden at the time sent $500 million of American taxpayer money to Honduras, the president, who he knew was smuggling drugs in that country from 2014 to 20, through 2015, 2016, $500 million. There's visits to the White House. There's a, uh, a Blair House communique they developed in 2016. This was a long-term program. In my opinion, Joe Biden was setting, putting down a down payment to the cartels to set up this human trafficking system that we're now seeing and have seen since he came in office. That's so let, me play, let me play devil's advocate. Why is he doing this? Because it's so out of control. The It's evidence-based. I mean, even 60 Minutes was down uh, on the border. And there's a, there's a section in California near San Diego where there's a corner and there's a hole in the, in the, at the end, or there's an opening at the end of, on the border at the end of, a, you know, one of the, one of the gates. The, yeah. One of the walls that, you know, that, that uh, President Trump built. What is the advantage of having something like this? I mean, this is unprecedented in terms of numbers. We're talking, you know, nearly 8 million illegals across the southern border only. And maybe 3 million have come in. And this is since Biden's been president. Why is he doing this? Because I, I, I'm having a hard time thinking how they can make, um, you know, turn this into something positive because we're well beyond. I mean, I'm talking to governors. I'm talking to local reporters across the United States. And I'm, you know, for we're hearing about the urban areas, the Chicago, the L.A., the Denver, the, the uh, New York. But it's also, I mean, we've got pockets of people that are in the rural areas. And these, these places may be the April to November migrant season. But at the same time, you know, they're not going to go back to their home countries because they're illegal and they're not going to be able to come back again if they get caught. Because, if, you, know, in, you know, it's so out of control. I don't think anybody can have a true handle on it. But why do you think that they're doing this? I think the architect of this program was Steve Ricchetti, who's still in the White House advising Biden. I think they brought it in at the time to endear themselves to the Hispanic community. They wanted to provide multitudes of voters. You know, one phrase. But, 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 but Bobby, you know, I mean, Bobby just said, and it's true. I mean, historically, it's absolutely true. Uh, it, you know, the Hispanics that do come in here. The illegals take away from their jobs. I mean, th this is this is a real right. situation where you have Hispanic versus illegal Hispanic in the conversations about economic survivability here in the United States. I, you know, that's something that is, is eventually going to get answered. Right off the top of my head, I couldn't give you an answer. I will tell you one of Barack Obama's favorite phrases that he uses all the time is "demographics is destiny." And Joe Biden used to talk about we're going to have huge migrations from of humans out of um, food over over food scarcity. He always talked about that. And he would talk about that's why Central America is having a tough time because of food scarcity. That's not what it is. You know, they well, may you, now, think, think about how illogic that illogical that is. I mean, we've been talking about. There have been people that have been on the right and the left, you know, some of you Genesis, some of them are overpopulation, some of them are business leaders, and some of them care about, you know, depopulating the, the, the globe, all right? 
And that conversation about overpopulation connected to famine has been as long as I've been alive. And I actually know some of the people. I mean, the Federation for American Immigration Reform in its heyday back in the 70s, it's now has since changed its, its mission. But they had people on their board that I knew personally that were worried about overpopulation and the effect on famine. And there were books that were written in the 60s and 70s, even by some guys who had retired from the CIA, talking about that everybody was going to starve to death if the, if the planet became overpopulated. <clears throat> now they're talking about it, and Biden is, has been talking about it, but it doesn't make any logical sense. If you're talking about overpopulation and people starving to death, then why would you want, if people, if we're going to have a scarcity of food in the United States, why would Biden be supporting bringing more people into the United States? I mean, this is so illogical to me. I, I can't even wrap my head around it anymore. Right. Well, he's not a logical guy. So also remember, what was Hunter Biden's primary um, nonprofit experience? World Food Program USA. He was in charge mm -hmm. of that. Joe put him in charge of that. That's what they were talking about all the time. So why is it illogical? Why did Joe do it? I think it was a down payment he, he made to the cartels. It was a deal to get him into the White House. I think he was willing to do anything to get into the White House. And this is one of many really sleazy, dirty, horrible things that he did, evil things that he did. Open up the southern border. We got to do that. I'm going to get into the White House. Joe Biden, you know, it's interesting with, with the, the Bobby Kennedy interview was really interesting. He's talking about Camelot. Joe Biden, through his career, would reference John Kennedy and Ted Kennedy constantly through through. And when I listened to him, he still did it. So he still has the bust of Bobby Kennedy's father behind him. And, and when he sits in the Oval Office at the desk and he won't give Bobby Kennedy Secret Service protection. I mean, I, I swear to God, if Ted Kennedy were alive today, I don't think that Joe Biden would get would, would get away with this. If Ted Kennedy were alive, Joe Biden would never have been president, period. But and Joe Biden in his story at, at the Naval Observatory, his over the over the mantle picture was John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And so he had them at top of mind. It was like his 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 wish board or his dream board. He sees himself as better than the Kennedys. That's how he sees himself. And he yeah. sees this this recreation of America in his view and this this migrant transfer, this transfer of people from South America and elsewhere into America is going to be his legacy. I think that's kind of deep in his psyche what he's doing. You know, I thought it was very noteworthy. And, and I know that the public is probably not going to read the 300, uh, nearly 400 pages of special counsel Robert report uh, on the classification, classified document investigation into Joe Biden. But I thought it was really, really interesting when Er talked about the fact that even though Joe Biden was a you know well-intentioned elderly man who didn't remember anything, we're not going to charge him for the for the possession and handling of the classified documents. But then Er took it a step further of how Joe Biden thought of himself as an historical figure for years. And I thought, well, that's probably because of the 150 plus witnesses that they interviewed for that investigation. But it, you're right. There is a certain amount of Joe Biden thinking more of himself than he actually was. I covered him in 1988. I was the political director at CNN. And I remember that um, in Iowa, 
the then Joe Biden didn't get any traction. Then he was, you know, he was exposed for plagiarism. And then he, he was exploded. He was also, uh, we had tape of him, you know, challenging one of the, you know, a citizen, I think it was of New Hampshire. And he got in the guy's face, just like Joe Biden got in the reporter's face, even challenging his mental acuity the other night in, during the Thursday night um, press conference. But Joe Biden didn't really get any place. I mean, he didn't. He never was, you know, going to win New Hampshire. And hence, it makes sense now when he's up for re-election this year. He basically gaslit Iowa caucus. He gaslit New Hampshire. He goes into South Carolina. He, you know, basically rigs the rules. His camp does, and the DNC does, so that Bobby Kennedy has to run. You know, has to run as, as an independent. So, I mean, there is a level of my way or the highway, the Delaware way by the Biden camp, more so and very transparently, I might add, than what the Clinton camp did to Bernie Sanders when Hillary was running against Bernie. It was a little bit behind the veil. Now it's sort of like, you know, who gives a damn? Michael, you've got the last word on this one because we, we've, we've got to bow out of this. But what, what are your, th I mean, first of all, how do people get in touch with your book? Because they need to read your book. And then any any thoughts going forward of what you see as a fallout from this past week with Biden? Um, book is on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. The Kindle uh, version has links. There's an amazing video of Joe Biden getting off a plane in uh, Kiev, Ukraine in 2015 and shaking the hand of a guy who's a secretly a Burisma board member. That's a big part of the chapter. That story is still really coming out. Uh, on, on sort of wrapping it up, um, Tucker Carlson did the world a great favor. I do not think any highly of Vladimir Putin, but he's not dis dishonest in everything he does and says. And he wasn't fully dishonest about what was going on in Ukraine. Joe Biden is dishonest in almost everything he does and says. So you know, pick your poison there. They're both bad people. And unfortunately, Ukraine and Russia are paying for it. The southern border's disaster. That's Joe Biden committing treason, giving aid and comfort to our enemies, the cartels. And the details are in my book. And I can't testify about it. You know, the, this Joe Biden Department of Justice won't let me testify. I've gone to the FBI. I've gone to uh, state's attorney, U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, when he was uh, in charge of Hunter's investigation, won't let me testify. I'm going to be working to te uh, to get in front of the current special counsel Weiss grand jury, and that's my next move. Well, Michael, good luck on that. Thank you again. We'll be talking to you. I advise everybody to get the book and especially read the chapter about Obama. It's enlightening. Michael, thank you again. You're welcome, Christine. Always a pleasure. We'll see you soon.